We all know about the Situationists. We all know that the Situationists were uh, under the impression that uh, in the revolutionary moment, poetry came into action and uh, not poems. Uh, I disagree with that. I use that as a starting point. And uh, I concentrate on another text, uh, which is not actually a poem by any means, but was accused of uh, being one by somebody or other. Uh, that all will become clear. Notes on militant poetics, polemical introduction. There is a zone of non-being, an extraordinarily sterile and arid region, an utterly naked declivity, when an authentic upheaval can be born, a descent into real hell. That's Franz Fanon, 1951. Truth content becomes negative. Poems imitate a language beneath the helpless language of human beings. It is that of the dead speaking of stones and stars. And that's uh, Theodore Adorno, of course. The situationists called poetry the antimatter of consumer society, a fairly questionable claim, but one that is at least expressive of the chasm that operates between official reality's definitions of poetry and those of whatever still remains of the revolutionary avant-garde. But having said that, any conflicts between mainstream poetry and academic avant-garderie are now completely irrelevant. It is actually a competition between two different official verse cultures, I believe. <laughs> the conventional is now experimental. The experimental is now conventional, to quote the fall. The situationists did know the real poetry of capital was advertising. Advertising, the corporate avant-garde, is the antimatter of everyday life, and poetry, meanwhile, has become entirely invisible. Or rather, it only exists in weird states of high and necessary intensity in zones of absolute negation. And so it would stay if it were not true that advertising is itself becoming fluent in what was always poetry's esoteric speciality, the language of the dead. The empty billboards that are becoming more and more common throughout East London and everywhere else speak more eloquently about the collapse of capital into sterile and arid zones of its own making than any poetry. Advertising and the utopia it expresses is now the antimatter of itself. Anyway, perhaps we should shut up about the situationists. As the saying goes, fuck May 1968, fight now. Though it's clear that advertising, like poetry, has its origins in the curse, the charm and the spell. The rumoured spells of the Welsh bards, all those secret combinations of words that had the power to kill kings. Those fantasies have become all too real in their transformation into the secret combination of words that have the power to make you want to kill the poor. And as the whole shithouse goes up, only an idiot would fail to see that the truth content of the spells of advertising's poetry are the sentences spoken by judges. Advertising was only ever the glamour cast over the real poetry of capital, the arid realities of the prison sentence and the police bullet. Okay. Begin with a quotation from the uh, Black Panther prisoner, George Jackson. I have completely repressed all emotion, have learnt to see myself in perspective, in true relation with other men and the world. I have enlarged my vision so that I may be able to think 
on a basis encompassing not just myself, my family, my neighbourhood, but the world. I have completely arrested the susceptibility to think in theoretical terms or give credence to religious, supernatural or other shallow, unnecessary things of this nature that lock the mind and hinder thinking. This, from the earliest letter in George Jackson's Soledad Brother, I think 1964, might be read as the negative expression of the famous statements in Rambeau's letters of May 1871 where Rambeau proposed an expansion of vision whose negation of privatised consciousness would permit entry into a transformative collective that would challenge and ultimately shatter, hopefully, the constrained possibilities of bourgeois consciousness as usual. Jackson's expansion of consciousness is made necessary and also possible through a maximum tightening of those same constraints. Jackson writes from solitary confinement, where the almost total annihilation of his subjectivity forces an expansion of vision so that it includes not just himself and the family and the neighbourhood that he is separated from, i.e. the content of a denied memory, but also the world, a world that Jackson believes he can see with absolute clarity because through his enforced separation from it, he is unable to reject the unnecessary things that define and lock it. Whereas Rambeau believes he can achieve clarity through a flight from bourgeois constraints, Jackson is forced into that clarity by the very impossibility of that flight. But more than Rambeau, Jackson's early letters resemble the writings of the revolutionary psychopath Sergei Nekayev, whose 1869 Catechism of a Revolutionist was reprinted by the Panthers in 1969. And I quote, The revolutionist is a person doomed. <laughs> he has no personal interests, no business affairs, no emotions, no attachments, no property and no name. Everything in him is wholly absorbed in the single thought and passion for revolution. The revolutionist knows that in the very depths of his being, not only in words but in deeds, he has broken all the bonds which tie him to the civil order and the civilised world with all its laws, moralities and customs and with all its generally accepted conventions. He is their implacable enemy and if he continues to live with them, it is only in order to, to, to destroy them more speedily. Where Rambeau also wishes to liberate himself from the laws, moralities and customs of the bourgeois civil order, Nekayev refuses the ecstasy of that liberation and bolts himself to the cruel centre of that same order. In seeking to express through his person the absolute negation of everyday reality, Nekayev becomes the personification of its basic banality and brutality. The passion for revolution, into which he must eradicate his being, is only the negative expression of the passion for money to which any bourgeois will ecstatically sacrifice their person. Jackson is forced into a more radical position than either Rambeau or Nekayev precisely because of the forced eradication of that passion. Jean Genet, in his introduction to Jackson's book, claims that the arid zone this necessary self-preserving refusal of passion gives access to is the place from which a new militant poetics can emerge. Genet says of the writings of Jackson and of the writings of other imprisoned black militants, their voices are starker more accusing and implacable, tearing out every reference to the cynical conjuring of the religious enterprise and its efforts to take over. They are more singular, and singular too in the way they all seem to engage in movement that converts the old discourses in order to denounce the curse not of being black but of being captive. Genet insists that Jackson's letters be read as poetry, 
His use of the word, like that of the situationist, is symptomatic, symptomatic of a crisis in that art form. A crisis expressed most forcefully in the fact that it remained an art form. That in part arose from the failure of surrealism to achieve their much advertised synthesis of Marx and Rambeau. It's an understanding of the possibilities of poetry that sounds almost hopelessly utopian now. The writings of Genet, the situationist, and Jackson, even given the pitches of rage and icy violence each of them reached, are soaked in revolutionary optimism. Victory, as far as all of these writers were concerned, was inevitable. From the standpoint of our own apocalypse, such optimism reads, at best, bitterly. But maybe an icy bitterness is just what we need. The violent austerity of Jackson's writings, and thus Genet's claims for it, may have managed to smuggle some of that revolutionary charge into our own historical position. The austerity of language means that everything must be laid bare. Genet notes that in order for his letters to get past the prison centre, Jackson must conceal all of his passion within a language in which the only permitted emotion is hatred. Poetry, the, quote, slandered, the reprobate words, the words that don't belong in the dictionary, become so much contraband. Forced to speak the language of the captor, the captive is only permitted to speak in a way that is absolutely comprehensible to that captor. All of the many things the word poetry is supposed to mean begin to buckle and come apart under this kind of pressure. Genet elsewhere speaks scornfully of the well-made poem or artwork. The closer a work of art is to perfection, he says, the more it is enclosed within itself. That aesthetic enclosure is obviously the counter-prison. The reactionary esotericism of remarks such as George Steiner's Celan's poems take us beyond what we already know, or Mario Vargas Llosa, I don't know how to pronounce that, we haven't learned this Spanish. We remain in the dark, unable to penetrate that mysterious aureole that we feel to be the secret of the Echo's poetry's originality and power. Such statements conceal the social pain, hunger and rage contained in that poetry. Anyone who has suffered the gross humiliation of being left out of the perfection of bourgeois reality knows all too well what that beyond, what that secret is, and they know it because they are it. Contemptuous of a, poet, of a poetics that is only ever an aesthetic parody of the commodity form, Genet implies that we need to think in terms of a poetry that can be somehow prior to itself or simultaneous with itself and can thus force that secret into the raw light of day. quote Walter Benjamin now. There too are crossroads where ghostly signals flash from the traffic and inconceivable analogies and connections between events are the order of the day. It is the region from which the lyric poetry of surrealism reports. And this must be noted if only to counter the obligatory misunderstandings of art. For art's sake was scarcely ever to be taken literally. It was almost always a flag under which sailed a cargo that could not be declared because it still lacked a name. This is the moment to embark on a work that would illuminate as has no other the crisis of the arts that we are witnessing, a history of esoteric poetry. Walter Benjamin believed that most hermetic poetry had a latent content, a secret that being actually spoken could negate the secret of the commodity. He drew a compelling analogy between Rambeau, Lothromont and Dostoevsky and the infernal machines of the 19th century anarchist terrorists. Mallarmé did the same. It doesn't quite work. The nihilism of Nekayev or the anarchism of Bakunin is ambiguous to say the least. The content of Rambeau's flight from poetry, that is the realisation of that poetry, was a flight into the silence of colonialism, free trade and capitalist vampirism.
If esoteric poetry is potentially the unspoken expression of the destruction of capitalism, then it is just as potentially the unspoken expression of the fascism that is always lurking at capital's centre. Thus, Breton's insistence on the need to work out a combination of the insights of Rimbaud and Marx continues to be one of the most important ideas in the history of modernist poetics. It has yet to be satisfactorily achieved. Breton's fetishization of poetry prevented him from understanding that its latent content could only be realized through a dialectic of poetry and Marxism and not the merely complementary relationship he envisioned. That this dialectic risked the destruction of poetry as poetry was more than Breton could bear. Likewise, the situationist realisation of poetry as a detournement of the Marxist realisation of philosophy was a vital moment whose chance so far has been missed. It is because of this failure that the political essays Genet wrote between the late 60s and his death in the early 80s, and in particular the series on George Jackson, may now be the most suggestive and important essays on militant poetics for our own period. They have still not been sufficiently understood. No idealist, Genet knew more than anyone since Benjamin, the basic ambigu um, ambi uh, ambiguity of extremist modernism. The dialectic of radical poetry meant it also realised in the brutality of capital itself. The George Jackson cycle sets up a fight to the death between the sentences spoken by the judge and the sentences Jackson wrote in solitary confinement. The prosody of capital's domination is inherent in every syllable the judge utters. His sentence freezes the time of the captive, who now has to live within that sentence for months, years, is a lifetime. Insofar as that lifetime is virtually erased, the judge's sentence also travels back in time, taking possession of every second the captive has lived through. Genet wants to believe that every sentence Jackson writes from within his forced invisibility negates the judge's prosody. For Genet, Jackson's writing realises a counter-time which is necessarily revolutionary. This only sounds idealistic. Jackson's revolutionary writing can, for Genet, be called poetic without belittling either Jackson's militancy or indeed poetry, only within the context of Genet's Blakeian claim that the revolutionary enterprise of a people originates in their poetic genius, or more precisely, that this enterprise is the inevitable conclusion of poetic genius. This cuts both ways. If it is true, then the judge is the conclusion of the poetic genius of the bourgeoisie. The many levels on which the class struggle has to, has to be fought includes a realised poetics. For Jackson, the poetic genius of the African-American people has only ever been the theory that we are good for nothing to, but to serve or entertain our captors. Continue the quote. Love has never turned aside the blade, boot or bullet. Neither has it ever satisfied my hunger of body or mind. The author of my hunger, the architect of the circumstantial pressures which are the sole cause of my ills will find no peace in this existence or the next or the one following that. Never, never, I'll dog his trail to infinity. I hope I never will feel love for the thing that causes insufferable pain. The hellhound on my trail of ancient blues mythology which Jackson has no use for, is reversed. Jackson's language is what remains after the record stops. Traditional poetic impulse is transformed within the high temporal compression of the cell into tense clarity, pure content, which in its turn transforms into intent. Another quote from Jackson. One of those tall, ultra-bright electrical fixtures used to illuminate the walls and surrounding area at night casts a direct beam of light into my cell at night. I moved to a different cell last week. Consequently, I have enough light, even after the usual 12 o'clock lights out, to read or study by. I don't really have to sleep now if I choose not to. 
the early hours of the morning are the only time of the day that one can find any respite from the pandemonium caused by these, the most uncultured of San Quentin inmates. I don't let the noise bother me even in the evenings when it rises to maddening intensity because I try to understand my surroundings. Jackson works to understand the truth content of his invisibility, the cell as the defining molecule of the official world, which, to quote Marcuse citing Hegel, is a strange world governed by inexorable laws, a dead world in which human life is frustrated. Or rather, a dead world in which Jackson has suddenly come to life and now must gauge what is comprehensible and alive within its noise and maddening intensity. From his cell in San Quentin, Jackson is writing from the centre of the position that some of the greatest moments in Western poetry have only ever been reaching towards. And it is through this awareness that we can begin to understand what Genet might mean by insisting on his sense that Jackson's writing is poetry. It is telling that Jackson calls the prison world, world pandemonium, for Milton talks about the same impossible situation. When Satan and the rest of Pandemonium's citizenry are transformed into serpents, that transformation is registered primarily by the loss of language, communication and thought. Dreadful was the din of hissing through the hall, thick swarming now with complicated monsters. The rebel angels are forced into a maddening intensity of noise where thought and speech become impossible. Attempts to deal with the necessities of speech and cognition from within a place where they are made impossible is a defining theme throughout revolutionary poetics, from Milton through Blake and Shelley and via Marx into the radical avant-garde of the earlier 20th century. Blake's Eurism in the Four Zoas tries to but cannot communicate with the horrid shapes and sights of torment he sees within the abyss, that is, prison, factory, slum, because his language, whether soothing or furious, is but an inarticulate thunder. Shelley's poetry is full of a sense of a liberated language which comes from a place so distant from the official world that it can barely, if at all, be heard. In the revolt of Islam, the spirit of liberty speaks in a strange melody that might not belong on earth. While in Prometheus Unbound, we are told that we cannot speak at all if we cannot already speak the language of the dead. That language of the dead is, in Marx's terms, the voice of dead labour, capital itself. Most contemporary poetry, both avant-garde and mainstream, is allergic to those voices and would like to pretend that poetic time lives separately to the dominant time of capital. It isn't true. Poetry has to pretend it can't communicate ideas because the cargo it carries, to once again use Benjamin's metaphor, is the collective voice of the victims of those ideas. The carefully put together exercises that pass themselves off as poems can ever, only ever be polite facsimiles of the exterior of cells like that of George Jackson, but it can only ever be the flaws and cracks in the surface that really speak. Amiri Baraka, in 1964, his own poetry beginning to crack apart under the pressure of the increasingly obvious contradictions between his aesthetic and political commitments, wrote that poetry aims at difficult meanings, meanings not already catered to. Poetry doesn't talk about the world, nor does it create meaning, but aims at meanings not yet articulated, meanings not catered to in the currently available aesthetic and social networks. This pushes poetry to a critical edge condition, which risks its destruction as poetry in a way that is far more serious than any silly corporate nihilism claiming to have killed poetry. Meanings are communicated which risk tearing the poem apart. Edouard Glissant describes this same process taken out of the framework of the history of poetry and into actual lived time. Since speech was forbidden, slaves camouflaged the word under the provocative intensity of the scream. No one could translate the meaning of what seemed to be nothing but a shout. It was taken to be nothing but the call of a wild animal. 
This is how the dispossessed organize their speech, by weaving it into the apparently meaningless texture of pure noise. The organization of speech <coughs> provokes the communication of meanings that had previously been impossible. It goes without saying that this organization has yet to be achieved. The poetics of the enemy has not ceased to be victorious, its own meaningless texture of pure noise all too readily comprehensible. On August the 21st, 1971, three days before his trial was due to begin, George Jackson was shot dead by a prison guard. If the internal secret of bourgeois poetics is the voice of the oppressed and the dispossessed, its silencing perimeter is the bullet of a pig. I a little bit. Quick quote from uh, Brecht. <coughs> but their Third Reich recalls the House of Tar, the Assyrian, that mighty fortress, which, according to the legend, could not be taken by any army, but when one single distinct word was spoken inside it, fell to dust. The revolutionary esoteric cargo of Benjamin's poetics opens out in the poetry of Brecht to become clear oppositional meaning. It sounds hopelessly idealistic, a magical thinking would, that would like to believe that if we could only speak truthfully to power, then its regimes would come tumbling down. But Brecht knows the fantasism of that position. This is not that, but is the moment, this is not that, but is the moment when poetry's hermeticism and esotericism becomes absolutely comprehensible, as it must if it is to meet head on the equally hermetic poetics of the oppressor. In times of social crisis, poetic ornament falls away, as does the social ornament of the enemy. Baraka's 1967 poem, Black People, written from within the looting and burning of the Newark riots of that year, tells us the magic words are up against the wall, motherfucker. The magic words of Benjaminian esotericism become the magical transformative language of the uprising. The slogan, up against the wall, motherfucker, tears out of the poem. This is not a poetry of witness, not a poem in monument to revolution, not a poem that's running after the fact of revolution, but a poem that appears in the action itself. And if it dis disappears in the dissipation of that action, then tough shit. And the only reason this is ridiculous is because this is what the poetics of the enemy have always been doing. And at this point in writing my paper, I realized that I was just rewriting a poem that I wrote in the aftermath of the London riots. So I'll read that to finish. This is called Letter on Silence. I wrote three poems, three prose poems. One the day before the riots, just thinking about riots. One the week after, expressing a certain social pain I felt. And this one, yeah. It includes some names that some of you may not know. Mark Duggan, the man who was shot by the pigs, uh, thus uh, starting the riots. Uh, Dale Burns, Jacob Michael, Philip Humes, uh, three working class men, two black, one white, if that's relevant, who were tasered to death by the cops in the, uh, in the week following the riots. And uh, no one really talks about that shit, do they? It's difficult to talk about poems in these circumstances. London is a razor, an inflamed calm has settled. We're trapped outside on its rim. I've been working on an essay about Amiri Baraka. Uh, maybe I should start this again saying that these are all imagined as letters to this kind of imaginary person. A uh, kind of, probably a bit of a, yeah. It's difficult to talk about poems in these circumstances. London is a razor, an inflamed calm has settled. We're trapped outside on its rim. 
I've been working on an essay about Amiri Baraka, trying to explain the idea that if you turn a surrealist image, defined by M.A. Césaire as a means of reaching the infinite, if you turn that inside out, what you'll find is that phrase in Baraka, the magic words are up against the wall, motherfucker. It's going very slowly. Hard to concentrate, what with all the police raids, the punishment beatings, the retaliatory fires. It'd be too much to say the city's geometry has changed, but it's getting into some fairly wild buckling. It's gained in dimension. Certain things are impossible to recognise, others are all too clear. I wish I knew more about maths or algebra so I could explain to you exactly what I mean. So instead of that, I'll give you a small thesis on the nature of rhythm. One, they had banged his head on the floor and they were giving him punches. Two, he was already handcuffed and he was restrained when I saw him. Three, he was shouting, help me, help me. Four, he wasn't coherent. Five, I went to speak to his mum. Six, he couldn't even stand up after they hit him with the batons. Seven, they knocked on her door three hours later and told her your son's died. I can't remember exactly where I read that. I'm pretty sure it wasn't in a literary magazine, but I guess you'll have to agree it outlines a fairly conventional metrical system. Poetry transforms itself dialectically into the voice of the crowd. René Menil made that claim way back in 1944 or something. But what if that's not true? What if all it can do is transform into the endless wax of police clubs? Certainly you get that in official poetry, be it Kenny Goldsmith or Todd Swift. Their conformist yelps go further than that, actually, as the police wax in their turn transform into the dense, hideous silence we're living inside right now, causing immediate closing of the eyes, difficulty breathing and coughing. Because believe me, police violence is the content of all officially sanctioned art. How could it be otherwise, buried as it is so deeply within the gate systems of our culture? Larry Neal once described riots as the process of grabbing hold of, taking control of our collective history. Earlier this week, I started thinking that our version of that, our history, had been taken captive and was being held right in the centre of the city as a force of negative gravity keeping us out and keeping their systems in place. Obviously, I was wrong. It's not our history they've got stashed there. It's a bullet, pure and simple, as in the actual content of the collective idea we have to live beneath. They've got that idea lodged, lodged in the centre of Mark Duggan's face, or Dale Burns, or Jacob Michael, or Philip Humes. Hundreds of invisible faces, and those faces have all exploded, etc. Anyway, this is the last letter you'll be getting from me. I know you've rented a room right at the centre of those official bullets. It's why you have to spend so much time gazing into your mirror, talking endlessly about prosody. There is no poetry. Prosody. There is only a scraped wound. We live inside it like fossilised, vivisected mice. So difficult to think about poems right now. And then I kind of run out of energy.